Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios. And my name is Robin Roberts. And in this episode, we'll be chatting with Peggy Losey, who's a health IT consultant with lots of clients in rural Michigan. Today, she's going to share with us how she has a soft spot in her heart for the underdog, as well as how she's found a way to work her consulting job from around the world. So let's jump right in. Peggy? Thanks so much. I walked into the healthcare IT industry after a loss of my job. I was I have 19 years of clinical orthopedic experience, and uh, one morning I woke up to a text uh, to make a phone call, and I was fired over the phone. And I had been in that world for many, many, many years, and um, that was right before the beginning of Meaningful Use. I was really, really, really fortunate to um, find a position at one of the regional extension centers here in uh, Michigan. Um, and it was actually prior to the first final rule for meaningful use, um, that making it 2010. Uh, I was at my daughter's looking for jobs. Uh, she lives in Germany. I was at, at her house looking for jobs online. And I said, it was July of 2009. And I just said to her, I said, that's my job. I'm getting that job. And I am a, a fierce advocate at heart, uh, both by, uh, by passion and by education. And so that's kind of the key words that I used when I was searching for a job. My last five years in orthopedics, among other things, I scribed for an orthopedic surgeon. And so I ended up finding this job and was ultimately hired at the Regional Extension Center. So that's, that's kind of how I got in there. Uh, how I how I stepped into the health IT world. And interestingly enough, it was not because I am an IT guru. I absolutely positively am not a technical IT person. I am an, a people person. And um, it was because of my, um, the person that hired me told me many times over, it was because of my advocacy. What kind of advocacy work have you been doing there? Well, I have uh, um, started, whoa, goodness, I, I get my college degree as an adult, so I've just always been passionate about helping the small guy. Uh, I watch competitions all the time, and I always want the underdog to win, and I've always felt if I have the ability to use my knowledge, uh, whatever whatever world I may be walking in at the moment, to help another person, then it's incumbent upon me to use the skills that have been given to me to help another person. 
And I, I've just kind of felt very, very, very passionate about that my entire life, whether it's customer service, um, whether it's in the, um, you know, the clinical medical world, or as over the past, oh my gosh, going on nine years now in the health IT world. Uh, and it ended up being a perfect, perfect match for me. My position with the Regional Extension Center was in Upper Lower Michigan, which is probably 85% rural. And those communities really, really, really needed a lot of hand-holding those early days of this uh, Meaningful Use Program. And so we just kind of grew together. And, and trust me, I knew nothing about these quality programs when I accepted that job. Oh, Kind of nobody did back then. Well, at the time, how many folks had EHR systems? Were you involved in actually, you know, from the beginning, getting the technology in, training them, and navigating through the meaningful use? Or had they maybe already had a start and you were picking up from no, where they left off? it was, like I said, this was a, a majority of my client base was still on paper charts. And I ran into incredible resistance. Some practices refused. During um, the initial days of meaningful use, all we had for guidance was the final rule. We had none of the beautiful resources that we have today. There was no training. It was literally trial by fire. Seriously, I went out and I did presentations to physicians that, that, especially the first year, it was actually until I did my first attestation that it really kind of didn't totally make sense to me. And when I did that first attestation, I'm like, that's when I had my aha moment. I'm like, I get this. I absolutely get this. So it was everything from helping them transition. First of all, we were challenged to help them pick an EHR. And in Michigan, we were um, EHR agnostic, vendor agnostic. So we tried to help them find the best vendor that was good for their practice. And then we walked them through the stages of moving from paper charts to electronic medical records. And in many, many, many cases, it was um, teaching them where to go within that EHR to find the data that they needed to report and then do gap analyses with them on a very frequent basis to make sure they were collecting the data then to be able to attest to when we did that those early attestations. It's certainly interesting over the last you know eight years or so just to see the different objectives and measures and things that we're actually trying to capture and document change over time. Can you speak a little bit to the progress that has been made even with maybe your rural clients in Michigan and you know, how far they've come from that time eight years ago? It was, it's, it's been an amazing transition. The number one thing being the overall acceptance of the program. And certainly early on, the dollars that were spent by the federal government to assist the providers in going electronic, to me, that was like the biggest change because I don't think without the financial incentives that the majority of them would have done that. And another big thing, and again, please keep in mind that my experiences were in um, a very, very rural section of the state of Michigan. And so the ability to go to these offices and, and you know, work elbow to elbow with these people, hold their hands through every step of the process was critical in getting them online and teaching them what they had to do. 
one of the challenges that ended up allowing me a huge uh, opportunity for learning was that a major vendor had done a masterful job of selling a very subpar product, should I say, to Uh, a large health system that a lot of these providers were members of. And along with that came additional fees to have to actually buy the meaningful use software and the training that came with it. So because the government then had provided my resources to these uh, in Michigan, it only cost each one of these providers $500 for three years of my consulting services through the Regional Extension Center, I was able to go in there and we dug around in the programs and found where the information was that they needed to report, as well as we uh, we did the training together, quite honestly, so that we could learn what we had to do to report. So to me, the biggest changes, uh, you know, one of the biggest changes has been acceptance, But another one of the biggest changes has been the empowerment of people through the funds that were provided um, in the initial grant funding for meaningful use to allow our uh, work together so that these people were empowered to be able to do the work after I left. Are they still on the same EHR? Like I, I see that to be a really common thing where we see the nickel and diming. Hey, you have everything you need, except now you need this one other thing. And unfortunately, that's going to cost $7,000 per user. Actually, that particular EHR went defunct, uh, was not an option after one year. And so these providers were all forced to either buy the program, the EHR that bought out that that bad one and I'm really really struggling here not to use product names but it also again was another great learning experience because everybody had kind of a general grasp of what they needed now year two of the program they were able to make more informed choices it wasn't just hey here's something that looks really cheap and something that'll get you where you need to go although it really wasn't then they were able to make informed choices based on what they knew that they needed in their particular situation. And at that time, um, the work was only with primary care physicians, not specialty offices. And so that too kind of was was a whole nother um, learning curve out there in the field. Almost nobody is on the original product they were on in 2010. A couple, but not many. Yeah, I see the same thing. I guess in addition to being flexible and being able to navigate change, what are some of the other qualifications that you think you need or your clients need in order to be successful in the quality payment program or just transitioning into value-based care? The number one thing that I tell folks when I'm going in to work with them is to know their medical community. Um, Because as we have watched this evolve, it started out as, I'm going to say, like an individual personal choice, what works in my practice. And as, especially again, in the upper Michigan area that I worked in, and I'm sure that this is representative across the country, and as these programs have evolved, we are seeing these smaller practices in many instances being bought out by especially a lot of the, well, I don't know if it's just primary care, but even a lot of the specialty practices are being bought out first by larger healthcare systems 
or becoming involved with ACOs or now because of, again, as the program has evolved through the macro legislation with all of these um, alternative payment models. And so we're no longer operating really in silos. A lot of people have now transitioned into bigger groups. And in many instances, it's because these uh, the regulations have been so burdensome on them. They're just like, I don't want to have to do this anymore. Go ahead, buy me out, and you do the work. I've seen a lot of the same stuff in Southern California. It is pretty incredible how many medical organizations are part of ACOs. So when you're doing your MIPS consulting, have you traveled down both the MIPS and the APM tracks as well as that sort of in-between space? I limit, I have limited my work with the MIPS consultants. I have really, over the course of my years doing this, I've really, really tried to stay focused on the area um, with which I am comfortable that I have the expert knowledge that's necessary for that for uh, a provider to work only in the MIPS space and that's because um, because of the transition um, and my my knowledge base from meaningful use and then PQRS and then you know the legacy programs the value-based modifier modifier program and those programs I really do limit my work with the smaller provider and uh, because that's where my I feel that my expertise lies Peggy, if you had to venture a guess about where all this stuff is heading, you have such longevity in this space, just, you know, taking your clinical knowledge of so many years, transitioning to this new role, so self-directed in learning, what's your take on kind of where things are at now? And if you had to venture a wild guess about where things are going, you know, what's going to happen maybe with some of those smaller providers uh, through the course of these programs. First of all, let me answer the first part of that. Where do I think it's going? Um, it's re- I, As I looked at it and I was talking with somebody last week, I was like, you know what? I really feel we are finally at that place. As we all remember, it was, I believe it was 2008 when there was a vision that we were all going to be connected for the benefit of the patient. That was the big vision. A patient is going to be able to take their medical record or access their medical record wherever they are because we're all going to have this beautiful inner operative world, interestingly enough, huge keyword this year going forward, that we're finally at that point where we can see that we might be able to achieve that very, very early vision. The difficulty being we didn't have the infrastructure to do that in those early days, and we've spent all of these years building the infrastructure really on the backs of all of these individual providers. And As we are all aware, many of those, as we just discussed, being part of a bigger entity. Well, I really, really think that the smaller providers are going to see value in the bigger entity. And then the second prong of that fork, I believe, is that whole quality, uh, I'm sorry, um, you know, the, the Medicare is costing us too much money and what can we do to reduce the cost of Medicare while increasing the quality of care that we provide to our patients. So I think that if we keep our vision on that on that real big picture that we started with originally, and we keep in mind all of these steps that we've taken along the way, to me, I see that they're finally going to reach that pinnacle of their vision, which is to be able to access your record wherever you want, which I think that that patient, I think, has become secondary 
to the course we take to get there. And over the period of time that it's taken for all of this to happen, sadly, I think that we've lost a lot of good providers because we've drowned them with requirements that they don't have the ability to do, whether it's technology or desire or whatever. So I'm hoping that, and I do really, really give CMS a lot of kudos for acknowledging this recently and saying, hey, wait a second, we've got to back off on what we're expecting of these providers because we're losing too many good providers, which I'm is one of my biggest fears as I step into the Medicare world myself very, very, very quickly. It's like, who is going to still be around to take care of me? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, that the acknowledgement of that burden by CMS and, you know, some of these exclusions and exceptions that have come online over the course of the years with all of this starting or going on almost a decade now has been something positive. How do you see your role kind of evolving? You know, you, you were able to translate some clinical experience, I'm sure, for some credibility and learning these programs. How do you see your role evolving just over the last couple of years and now into the future? Because I'm sure people are looking at you as a trusted advisor through this path and your longevity with them. Well, it's interesting. I really, really like to think that not a whole lot has changed about the way that I offer my services. Keeping in mind my advocacy uh, passion, I have always, and again, my struggle that first year with meaningful use and my aha moment where it all made sense to me. It's like, I've got to find a way to translate all of this in a meaningful and actionable way with somebody who doesn't understand it. And right from day one, I have always kind of been known as that person who can simplify the process. I should add here that once I stopped working for the Regional Extension Center after the the end of that first wave of meaningful use incentive money through the RECs, I did go into um, consulting. First, I did it for another company, and then I went into independent consulting. And every single time I did a presentation, that's exactly what I did is I took, I've always stayed up to date on um, all of the new program regulations. And again, huge kudos to CMS for the uh, educational resources and the guidance that they now give us. But the way that what I have always done is I've, I've stayed up to date on those. And then when I create a presentation, I look at the level of expertise of the group that I'm presenting to. If it's a group of Northern Michigan rural providers, it's very, very, very diluted. I always call it a need-to-know basis. Uh, about a year or so ago, and it was right before as MIPS was knocking on our door, I did a presentation to a statewide physician organization um, in one of our neighboring states. And so that was at a little bit different level, but of course it required a little bit of a different approach with them because I wanted them to understand what was going to be required from them, not necessarily what maybe their support staff could do or something like that. But anyway, my, my mantra has always been need to know. And I really think that as we move forward, it's going to be really, really, really important to continue to stay up to date with the regulations and to continue that approach because there's a lot of people out there who don't get it. They still don't get it. And sadly, there's still such a negative connotation anytime 
I walk into, um, you know, whether it's a clinic or an organization or a presentation or whatever, I'm viewed as CMS. And uh, actually, for my one-year anniversary at my former um, consulting company, as a gift, they gave me um, a statue of a, a knight in of an, a knight in armor because I used to uh, literally I would have the person who introduced me say she is not CMS, she's here to help, and that's I, li- I had that, I had that slide of that, and I still have it sitting here in my office of that night because. It's, I mean, you literally get shot darts and you have, you have to absorb that. You have to expect that. You have to respect that and you have to absorb it and then let people have their voice and then I'll say, okay, I'm here to help. Here's how we're going to do it with what you need to know so that you can be successful. I think if I veer from that platform, it's, it's not going to represent who I am and I'm not going to be the, the successful person that I have been helping these people realize success with their efforts. Yeah, we definitely appreciate that. I know Joy always talked about it. The knight in shining armor is such a great analogy, you know, showing up to help people and translating it in the way you do to simplify it. Uh, Joy would always joke that, you know, she's the, our team was that those she trained, you know, they became these superheroes, you know, in trying to do it. Can you, uh, can you tell us about maybe a time where, you know, you showed up, tried to have that approach and, you know, reminded everyone, you know, you didn't make the rule, you were just there to help them navigate it and, you know, be part of the solution. What's one of the more challenging practices or providers or organizations you've run across? The minute you said that, I was placed immediately in a rural Michigan practice during the meaningful use. And this isn't even talking PQRS MIPS, this is meaningful use. I did a lot of the presentations um, in a uh, a lunch and learn fashion. And I would always stop at my own expense and pick up pizza because everybody likes to eat and they like a free meal. So I would do that and I would do my presentation. And, and this particular practice, anyway, it was a physician assistant-led rural health center practice. And in these small communities, these PAs and the nurse practitioners, God love them, they're, they have a huge, huge, huge place to be in an in a area where they're uh, greatly needed and there's a lot of times not a lot of doctors to go around. And they're very, very highly revered as the medical provider. This, I think they had two, or there was one or two PAs at this practice. And there was only four people that worked, very, very small audience. And the three people other than the PA sat, you know, we were sitting around the thing. I got everything all set up and uh, got pizza out. Everybody's eating. And we were kind of waiting for the PA to walk in there. And he walks in there, grabs a plate, fills it full of pizza, announces that he is never going to allow the government to see any of the work that he does in his medical chart. And I said, would you like to have a seat? And I'll show you how I can help you do that and whatever he goes. I'm going to take my pizza home and I'm going to eat it at home. I'll be back after lunch. Wow. Yep. He left that practice and a year later, he was in another practice where we were firmly established. So. Well, actually, that makes a really good point because one, you definitely want to meet people where they're at. It's important to, you know, they're not going to be able to jump in just anywhere because when you look at all of the requirements of the quality payment program, there's just so much to it. But if somebody ignores it entirely and is coming from the perspective of saying, you know, the government's not going to control me, I, I do what I want. Unfortunately, there is a little bit of a, well, a large consequence for taking that approach. 
And it sounds like that's what happened to this individual. Well, it was what, what's happened. And interesting, again, as, as most of us see in most situations as we travel through life, I use that as a learning experience and the addition of another slide into my slide deck. Because the next, because they were part of a, a federally qualified health center, what's called, what we call an FQHC, and so they were one of many practices uh, that were in a larger organization. So when I spoke with other organizations or other practices within this FQHC, the slide that I added was, "Do I have to participate?" And my response was, "No, you do not have to participate," but. If you do not want to participate, I would recommend that you do not accept Medicare or Medicaid because that is the price of participation in those two programs. It's like if that's who you're getting your paycheck from. If you don't like the rules set down by your employer, it's time to find a different job. Yeah, that's a good point. We would also often talk about the commercial payers often taking the lead from Medicare. Mm-hmm. And so even if you decide not to take Medicare patients, your lack of participation could still reflect poorly, potentially, in the commercial world. Exactly. And and like I said, this started in an FQHC scenario, which is heavily, heavily, heavily Medicare, Medicaid. And it actually then transitioned into other practices because um, my success has been 100% word of mouth. And, and as I broadened my client base, it did involve more commercial insurances. And actually, it was a little bit easier for them to accept it because, uh, of course, here in Michigan, Blue Cross Blue Shield is a huge commercial insurer. And though they were already participating in incentive programs through Blue Cross Blue Shield. So their acceptance of these new regulations with Medicare did not come with the shock that it did to many of the much, much smaller, you know, community practices and organizations who have been pretty much in the Medicare, Medicaid insurance worlds. Peggy, if you could give us your take on kind of the regulation, you know, keeping up with it is probably one of the single largest challenges just because, you know, you're you're getting new rules that right after the ink on the others have dried and the other proposed rules. How do you personally stay on top of that to be able to assist your clients and give them up-to-date information and give them that need to know? I rely very, very, very heavily on the official CMS documents. As, as I originally stepped away from the security of the Regional Extension Center rec backing, I did question my ability to be able to, you know, have a safety net underneath me. And I thought, wait a second, I'm up here in rural Michigan relying on all of these CMS documents to do what I do on a daily basis now. I should be able to continue to do so. And that is exactly what I've done. I love what's available on the QPP website. I cannot commend CMS enough about how they have developed that. And I think that a lot of that is because of how poor it was during the legacy programs. And I was thinking about this this morning. Actually, I think probably one of the best presentations that we might consider doing in the future is how to navigate the QPP website to be able to do this program on your own so that you don't need a consultant. And, and just uh, as, a, as a side to this, 100% of my clients I have today are clients that I have had for several years. 
which I find so interesting because they know I rely on CMS documents. They know where I get my, my data from, but they just don't know how, where to go in there to get it. And I guess they still want a helping hand. But to your question, there's every single thing that you need to know to navigate these programs on that QPP website. And then, uh, Joy, I know that you have used this frequently, the, um, you, the numbers that you can call to get the assistance. They are incredibly helpful people, and if they, and they uh, have not ever failed to get me um, an answer to a question I had. Whether it might not always be the question I wanted to get, but it and, and it always, always, always related back to an element of the final rule. Because as we all know, we're all bound by legislation, and if it's in the final rule, it guides us, it dictates what we do. If it's not, it doesn't. So they, and that's how I continue to stay. I listen to all the CMS webinars that I can listen to. I watch their a lot of their YouTube videos that they have. I utilize that QPP website 100%. Do you ever find yourself competing with the advice or pseudo advice or interpretation of others, like uh, EMR vendors, ancillary vendors, societies, and associations? All the time. And again, my, my defense there, and sadly it has to become a defense, is going exactly what I just said, right back to CMS, to that final rule. And I always back that up with the regulation in the rule, that's, and even if I have to call in and say, okay, please show me in the final rule where it says this. From your perspective, you've seen a little bit of underbelly of different healthcare systems but what are the types of things that you share with people that are not in health IT that maybe you would want your daughter to know if she's going to the doctor or a family member or a trusted friend? I went to a CMS session at HIMSS that year that you and I met, actually. And uh, CMS, and it was, one of, it was a listening session, and one of the things that they did was um, they said, we want you to, uh, to come up and tell us what th- what's the first thought in your mind when you think of making an appointment to go to your doctor. And it was very interesting to learn that it wasn't, I have a sore throat and I need to see what's, re- you know, why I'm sick. The thing that, you know, as it relates to the IT world is, are there barriers that would keep a patient from making an appointment to go see the doctor because of the IT requirements in that office today. Um, and not just the IT requirements. One person got, or one, actually it was one of the presenters said that his mother hates to call to make an appointment to see the doctor because of a parking issue. It's too far for her to walk from the parking lot to the front door. My particular issue would be getting my the severity of my illness or whatever past the gatekeeper who is often the front desk person so that they know that I need to go see the doctor. From a healthcare IT perspective, um, if I were a physician office, I would say, how can I change the the um, workflows in my front office so that when somebody calls in, number one, we it appears that we care and they're not just a number. There are no, uh, when you see the schedule in front of you, that they don't, it doesn't appear as though they see there are no openings so you can't get in. Or how many clicks am I going to have to make to be able to see this patient 
and do the appropriate follow-up care and get the amount of money that I feel that I have spent caring for this patient. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You also have some side projects that are pretty interesting, and you're a little bit of an expert in the flea market world. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about this you know, side project that you work on? I would be so happy to. I have just recently published uh, my very first book called Flea Market Travel Treasures and Tips. I have a pseudoname called Flea Hopper. I've been a lifelong antique slash thrift store slash flea market slash auction lover. And my daughter, 17 years ago, moved over to Germany. And um, of course, that brought with it um, a lot of emotional things. And oh my gosh, I'm never going to see her again type of a thing. And uh, when I went to visit her for the first time in Germany, I realized that this is not just something that we do here in the U.S., but it is a universal language. And so I started collecting pictures and stories along the way. And I create, and, and that's kind of what the basis of my book was. And uh, along with that, many, many, almost 20 years ago, I started selling on eBay. And I, what I do now and have done for the past 17 years since my daughter, believe it or not, her name is Heidi, moved over to Germany, is I, um, I sell on eBay the things that I find at thrift stores and flea markets and to fund my travels to Europe. So when I always tell people that I go to Europe a couple times a year, um, I travel really, really, really on the cheap, and I use the profits from the things that I sell that I have purchased at uh, secondary markets. And I buy two, sometimes three tickets a year over to Europe doing that. How wonderful. Yeah. And that's, that's the essence of the uh, flea market book, the stories along the way, some eBay tips. And um, essentially, as I finished it, I thought, wow, I didn't realize that brought such closure to it being okay that my daughter lives 5,000 miles away. But that's the essence of the book is how I combine all of those elements of my life and actually the uh, capability to work my health IT business remotely from around the world, no matter where I am. I have done that for the last nine years and it has worked beautifully and it has allowed me to have the best of all worlds. So it does all kind of come together. So you can work while you're over there. I imagine that the time change must Absolutely. You know, it's a, with your sleep schedule. Yeah, it's a six-hour time difference, but I'm used to dealing with that uh, with her on a daily basis. And so I have done presentations from over there. I have done, you know, phone calls from over there. Uh, yeah, it, I never let where I am stop me because I really have always been a remote employee. So as long as I have my computer and internet connection, I've been uh, it's it's been very, very easy for me to, you know, to do my healthcare IT job no matter where I am in the world. And I guess to kind of bring it back to health IT a little bit, as you've traveled through Europe, have you experienced their healthcare system and, you know, ever had to go to the doctor? And if so, could you speak to what the differences you've, you've seen based on what we have here versus over there? Well, knock on wood, uh, I have never had to go to the doctor over there. Um, however, I did dabble in some work for a short period of time 
with an organization that is based out of the UK. So I did learn about um, the national health system in the UK and and uh, boy, that's, you know, as we think about universal health care here in America and or not, um, it's interesting to um, learn about their, mas- their master patient index and how, and, and truly they do have what we seek to own here in the U.S., where no matter where you are over there, your medical record is at the provider's fingertips. Um, I was affected one time over, well, one time we were in Paris, and by the way, and many of these stories are in my book, which is available on Amazon, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, we were in Paris, uh, and our luggage was delayed, and my husband had his medications in his luggage and not his carry-on, so we were able to go to a pharmacy over there, and by providing the name of his blood pressure medication, we were able to get over the counter through an English-speaking pharmacist his medication, enough medication for him to be able to continue to take his medications without interruption. Um, and then one time I was in Germany at my daughter's. You may, may remember this several years ago. There was a um, volcano in Iceland, and it created a, a large cloud that we were not able to fly back on our original return flight, and I had only enough medication with me. Um, oh, I take that back. I did have to go to the doctor over there. Um, and so my son-in-law, who is a German national, was able to uh, recommend uh, just a, like a drop-in clinic that my cousin was with me, and each of us did have to go and and see the provider i mean literally it was like a three-minute thing oh yes you have high blood pressure you need this medication or whatever uh, the medication was and then they gave us a prescription for it and then we were able to go to the pharmacy that was connected to that particular clinic and get our medications that we needed you know until the skies cleared and we could come home just like that just like that Oh, and there was one other thing that I think that is kind of interesting is my son-in-law is a tax auditor for the Bavarian government. So they have the national health care that's offered over there, which is very, very, very minimal coverage. And everything that you hear about, uh, the long lines for service. So almost everyone um, who has a job over there carries a secondary private insurance to be able to get the um, level and quality of health care that, that we all take for granted. Wait, can you explain that again? They have a secondary insurance above and beyond the national health care? Yes, they buy, um, they buy a private insurance. Yeah, they have, they, everybody gets, uh, you know, a base level insurance. But a, a perfect example would be um, a shoulder, say a shoulder injury. Okay, you're allowed one MRI of your shoulder in your lifetime under that insurance. So if you, as, as I understand it, and as, as has been my experience watching them, and so what they do is they buy a second private insurance on top of that, which would give you kind of like what you would get with a, a commercial insurance in the U.S. So say, you are, say you had a knee injury. Um, and you originally had um, an arthroscopic procedure. You had an MRI that proved that you had a tear. You had an arthroscopic procedure, and it didn't heal well afterward. 
uh, or whatever the reason you re-injured it or whatever, you could never have another MRI on that knee paid for with the insurance. So that secondary insurance would then kick in and you could have perhaps that second MRI or you could have the related physical therapy that was needed or, or whatever because that secondary insurance provided greater benefits. Got it. Thank you for explaining. I think it's really interesting how, you know, you're balancing just some of your the passion you have for kind of the flea market stuff and the international travel with, you know, this really unique path in health IT and just the book of business you have and their dedication to you. I just think it speaks volumes about you as a dynamic individual to do all this stuff. And it's just, it's really fascinating, Peggy. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and, and you know, before, um, before we wrap things up here, I would just really, really like to encourage anybody who has an, a healthcare background, because I do think that the clinical knowledge really, really helped me understand some of the challenges early on. But if those folks that are out there looking to transition into this field, um, if you don't have the technical IT knowledge, that is, in my eyes, that if I were a hiring person, that is not the number one thing I would look for. I would look for someone who understands workflows and someone who's a good people person because you can have the best IT skills in the world or the, the greatest knowledge of programs in the world. But if you don't have the people skills that are necessary to be compassionate and and listen to what the needs are of the particular organization you're working with, whether it's an individual or a large organization, you're not going to be able to understand what their pain is. And understanding their pain is going to allow you to reach into your mental gym bag. Thank you, Patty Houghton, for that word. Um, and pull out those individual tricks, if you will, or tips that are going to allow them to empower themselves to own their own process. And that ultimately, I think, is what the goal of everybody should be, is to share enough knowledge and enough actionable information so that other people don't need your services. Peggy, if somebody wanted to find you, where should they look? My contact email is Peggy Losey, L-O-S-E-Y, at gmail.com. Um, or you can find some of my fun flea hopping adventures at fleahopper.com. Or you can find my book on Amazon, Flea Market, Travel Treasures and Tips. That's great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time today to speak with us and for sharing your experiences. It's just been really delightful. Thank you so much and best of luck to everybody out there. Um, that's that's uh, swimming these waters with us. We will get through this. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. Bye now. Okay, so the lessons we learned today. Listen more than you talk. Meet people where they're at. Empower them to help themselves if you can so you can reach out and help even more people. Got it. If you want to know more about Peggy or get access to our book, Flea Hopper, you can find it over on our website, hitlikeagirlpod.com. Or if you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you can find us at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Also, if you found value in this episode, we ask that you share it with just one person. This podcast is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast listening apps. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.